Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, we're beginning with the news that UK is today expected to join the international allies in changing their extradition pact with Hong Kong, suspending it. In fact, there have been calls for that suspension after China imposed the controversial new security law on the city. The Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, will address Parliament later. Over the weekend, he told the BBC's Andrew Marr that a review into the arrangement has been completed. We're going to follow the UK national interest and we're going to work with our partners, try and uh, work with China on the things where we can really accentuate the positive, but be very clear-sighted and clear-eyed about the risks and we're going to protect our vital interests. That was the Foreign Secretary there, Dominic Raab. Tensions between the UK and China, of course, ramping up in recent weeks, not least with the banning of Huawei in the UK 5G infrastructure. We could also see uh, sanctions over human rights abuses. The UK uh, ambassador, the Chinese ambassador to the UK, Liu Xiaoming, warning that would have consequences. So, so many moving parts here. And throw into that the US as well. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, is in town this week. He's expected to meet with hawkish MPs uh, from both the Tory and Labour parties before talks with the Prime Minister. The feeling from the other side of the pond very much, though, is that the UK still hasn't gone far enough. So more pressure coming from Washington as well. Indeed. Well, joining us now, very pleased to say, is Ian Duncan Smith, Conservative MP, former Conservative leader, of course. Uh, welcome to the programme, Ian. Uh, first of all, dealing with this extradition issue, which is fascinating, it's something you've been working on quite a lot, isn't it? It is. We set up the uh, Inter-Parliamentary Alliance on China. Uh, it's a left and right, it's, a, it's across the floor uh, in a number of countries, and um, therefore we've now got something like 18 countries joined European countries, all the Five Eyes, Japan, uh, India looks like it's about to join countries in Africa, all coming together, democracies who believe in the rule of law and human rights, and they're, they're working together, and we want their governments to work together. And what was interesting uh, is that we've actually managed successfully, I think, uh, over the last uh, um, uh, few weeks, actually, only been long, to get countries like Australia, Canada, the Czech Republic, New Zealand, uh, United States, and now the UK, to review and withhold their extradition uh, links with Hong Kong. So it, it's having an effect already, but it's about getting the free world to come together uh, to start putting you know, pressure on China to change its ways. How far are you prepared or should the government be prepared to, to go with this, though? Because, of course, there are very deep links with China and they're links that, that, that some want to be strengthened, especially in an era of Brexit. Uh, well, I think we... we well, 
what I've said all along is I think the next phase in all of this, uh, and we certainly should look now at sanctioning, I think, uh, members of Chinese officials, governments, etc., that are complicit, first of all, in the breach of human rights, the Uyghurs, uh, Christians, Tibetans, uh, Falun Gong, those sort of people in China, and, of course, guilty of uh, the uh, new uh, internment laws, the new security laws in Hong Kong, in breach of the treaty, uh, the Sino-British Treaty, which, is, uh, which implements the one country, two systems, and the basic law. So we think that's probably the next step. That will take a little bit longer because they've got to make sure they've got all their legal elements absolutely straight. And then the third point is that we need now to look at a strategic review across the uh, free world. We should be reviewing our dependence on China, uh, where it affects our strategic interests, uh, and look uh, to say to China, look, until things change, until you abide by the normal rules of the free market, the WTO, instead of breaching them and subsidizing companies to drive others out of business, until you agree that human rights is something that is not an add-on, but an absolute integral part of modern modern society, <clears throat> and the rule of law, international rule of law, and the free judiciary, all those sort of things are important. And I think just now we have a chance to uh, have some uh, influence on China, because the one thing they do concern about is if the free world starts coming together and say, actually, do you know what, we're going to look for business elsewhere. But there is a cost to this, Sirian. I mean, what about, for example, if China is removed from the UK's nuclear expansion? Do you support that? That would be a big blow, make it very hard for the UK to do what it wants to do in that area. Well, I would like a review, as I said, a strategic review to look at where we are dependent and where that dependency makes me makes us vulnerable. Uh, I think we do need to review our dependency on China. We have one plant at the moment being built, still yet to prove that it actually works, and they're now bidding for others. And my question would be, number one, we need a proper review of our energy policy because there's a lot of other things that we can do here in the UK, uh, tidal power, hydrogen, where we are world leaders, <clears throat> instead of looking to build up huge, great uh, nuclear power stations. That notwithstanding, even if we do intend to go down the nuclear road, I think instead of just rushing for the cheapest price, we need to look again within the free world at who's actually producing these countries like Japan, uh, who are wanting to get involved with the UK in this particular area, who have great experience, and I would hesitate but to say, but who have the experience both when things go wrong and when things go right, and therefore their technology does seem to work. So <clears throat> all of this, I think, is not a case of not doing something. Uh, the question is, how dependent are we on one country, and have we allowed that lazily uh, to put pressure on ourselves? What about TikTok? You've called for the app to be banned, like it has been in the US. The spokespeople for TikTok, though, saying that there is no access by the Chinese government of data because all of that is stored over in the US. What, what is the reason there for wanting to ban TikTok? Well, I think uh, ByteDance is the company, actually, that I'm uh, looking at rather than just TikTok. TikTok is a product they produce. ByteDance is closely associated with the Chinese government. And all Chinese companies are not, they're not the same as we think of as private listed companies. They're not listed in the sense that, uh, you know, a company in the UK would be or in the US. They're not open, therefore, to full interrogation. And they do have this obligation in China that all companies uh, that are Chinese companies uh, and even if they're based in China, they must cooperate with security services in all matters, regardless of what that demand is. And, you know, that makes them vulnerable. And, you know, we said that Huawei was an untrusted vendor for those reasons, plus the fact, I think, that they've massively misbehaved 
in terms of the way they behaved in the free market, in terms of subsidies and outbidding, you know, people. But uh, with uh, bike dance, I think it's much the same case. And if you look at TikTok, it's a massive harvesting operation. Harvests huge amounts of data uh, from people that are involved with it, uh, all of which can be used and would be used. They're not a trusted vendor, and therefore, on that basis, if they're simply in the same category as Huawei, then we need to review the way that we work with them. So yeah, there is a huge cost to this, though, to come back to that mm. point, which is, for example, a headline suggesting certain British universities might even uh, run out of money entirely if they lose Chinese students. China can pull a lot of levers to make our life, the UK's life, particularly post-Brexit, very difficult indeed economically. Jobs might go. Constituents of yours might lose their jobs as a result. Is that a price worth paying? Well, I, don't, I actually don't think that is the case. We always try and deal with these as though without China, we're all going to go bust. It's simply not the case. There are plenty of other markets and plenty of other countries uh, who actually want to do business with us. They're being uh, maneuvered out by the Chinese. Let's take India, for example. Uh, I was talking to uh, Indian politicians the other day, and they were all saying, you know, we've been screaming at the UK for ages to do a proper trade deal with us. Because, you know, lots and lots of our students, for example, do want to come to UK universities, but UK universities seem to have only looked at China. Uh, they don't seem to be interested elsewhere, and there's huge possibilities in those areas around the Commonwealth trade deals to be done. So I don't think, whilst we, uh, we are indebted to China in some regards, which we shouldn't be, uh, they don't dominate our whole GDP. They're a small element of that. Uh, and we need to look at how, as we go forward, if China doesn't want to change its behavior, uh, then we you know, look to look, replace that. And there are plenty of other countries in the free world that are ready, willing, and able to do that. The idea that we've allowed all our capability in, in telecommunications infrastructure to disappear so that we're, <clears throat> we've gone from 12 companies in the free world down to about three uh, is a massive strategic error on governments in the free world. And they now not rethink that. And we used to have Marconi were one of the world mm. leaders and telecom, British telecom, decided to dump them because they got a cheaper price from Huawei. So I think this has uh, got to be reviewed carefully. Right. OK, so that, that's China. I've got to ask you about the virus as well. There was a whole hoo-ha mm. over face masks. And now I'm seeing a poll in the mail today. 14% of people would refuse to be vaccinated when it came to it. Do you think at some point we might have to look at mandatory vaccinations to, 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 to get coverage? Well, <clears throat> the one thing I do want to start all of this with is, before we get into that, I do think that what's happened with the, uh, the problem with coronavirus is we've kind of lost our balance. You know, we're so, we've become so petrified about coronavirus uh, that we've actually lost the balance of how you balance risk against what you want to achieve. <clears throat> you know, and for vast swathes of the British public, they're not in the slightest bit uh, in danger or threat from coronavirus. You know, if you're under 40, you're going to be more likely to die getting on a bicycle than you are ever from coronavirus by some significant degree. And so the key thing here is we've got to try and rebalance this so that people can make choices again. You know, going back to work, I was just coming in on the train in the tube this morning. They're, they're almost empty during rush hour. People have been frightened off the tube because they think that they're all going to catch coronavirus. And the truth is they're not. And therefore, we've got to try and get people to think, well, let's use your judgment uh, and now start thinking about how you get back going. Otherwise, business will go to the wall. And our, the, the balance of our choice on face masks is slightly different from the balance on on uh, on inoculation, as it were. Uh, and the I think the key thing here is, first of all, let's discuss the matter 
publicly and talk about the benefits versus the risks and deal with it that way. I'd much rather people come voluntarily to the concept of being uh, vaccinated than kind of be dragooned, because that's where you end up with major problems. And I think if it's properly explained, the vast, vast majority of people will actually do it. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at some of the other stories. Then we start with the news that Boris Johnson will get together with the cabinet for an in-person meeting this week as he's trying to set an example for returning to work. That's been the drum he's been banging for the last few days now. This is all in the mail on Sunday. The Prime Minister telling the Sunday Telegraph as well, though, he doesn't think Brexit will need another lockdown and likened it to a, or doesn't think Britain will need another lockdown and likened it to a nuclear deterrent, a last resort. So mm. uh, seemingly rather casual, but I don't know whether that involves or includes local lockdowns as well, which seem like they could be more likely. Yes, I'm not sure the nuclear language is exactly well chosen, I have to say, given what people think about hiding in shelters and such like. Anyway, but Scotland is very much in focus today because there have been more than 20 new cases of the virus detected in Scotland for the second day in a row. Saturday saw the biggest rise in nearly a month, 21 new cases, and a further 23 confirmed cases were reported yesterday. But the First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, noted it was still a low number of cases and fluctuation was to be expected. The proportion of positive Test results remains well below 1%. Yes, so keeping a close eye on those infection numbers. And meanwhile, now we do get to talk about Brexit. Trade negotiators in a tense standoff, dashing hopes of a swift deal. There have been informal meetings between the EU and the UK, but they haven't made any progress since last month. The latest round begins today in London. But negotiators on the British side say that the EU's concessions aren't enough and the EU says its attempts to compromise aren't being reciprocated. So lots of mudslinging there and no signs of any progress. But we watch and hope as those talks kick off today again. Yes, and speaking of well-worn issues, home prices. Some good news apparently for home sellers. Advertised prices climbed 3.7% from a year earlier in July. That's the most in more than three years. That's according to Right Move. Now, this all comes after the Chancellor, of course, suspended stamp duty earlier this month for about 90% of transactions, saving many buyers thousands of pounds. There's also respite for tenants as well. Rents for homes in central London had a record decline last month as landlords flooded the market with properties previously rented out through companies like Airbnb. Now, housing in the city centre went for 7.4% less in rent terms than a year earlier in June. That's according to the broker Hamptons International. At the same time, the number of homes available to rent shot up by 26% in London. Yes, such a paradigm shift, isn't it, for the housing market, all this corona business and the changing habits. I suppose what the uh, acid test really is, is how much things really do change. And that, of course, will be reflected in the housing market. But anyway, we've got to talk about Parliament and the spectre hanging over it. And that's the state of the building 
itself. MPs are currently set to move away to a custom-built replica House of Commons in, or the chamber at least, in uh, Richmond House in central London for at least six years whilst those repairs are carried out. Last week, Boris Johnson, though, writing to Commons authorities asking that they consider moving Parliament to York instead. And then amid the dire economic state of the country, need we say, not everybody happy with the plan that is scheduled to cost in in the multi-billions, at least. Uh, so joining us now to talk about all of this is Alexandra Meekin. She's a research associate at the Sir Bernard Crick Centre for the Public Understanding of Politics at Sheffield University. Uh, Alexandra, great to have you with us. This is a really interesting issue. It's been going on for some while. Uh, where are we now? Is this finally going to happen or could it be scrapped? It could still be it could still be scrapped, as you say. It's been going on for a very, very long time. I mean, the building itself, as most of you know, the old Palace of Westminster burnt down in 1834. The new building was completed in the 1860s, um, and while it was partially rebuilt after some bomb damage in World War II, much of the infrastructure does still date back to the 19th century. And the problem we've got now is that for years, um, all this infrastructure uh, was allowed to decline. It was neglected, it was only patch and mend rather than any complete uh, refurbishment work, um, and everything is just failing. Uh, we've known that it's a huge problem since, well, since the turn of the millennium. Um, there's been plans in place uh, being discussed since about 2012. Finally, a decision was taken in 2018 to say that MPs and laws to move out entirely for the work to take place. Many people have thought, OK, yep, we're going to go ahead, we're going to sort this out. Um, but it's still a very long way off, and the Prime Minister's intervention last week suggests that we may back, be back to uh, square one. Yeah, it's extraordinary how political it's become. I mean, obviously, it's a political issue because it's to do with Parliament, I suppose. But you would think the basic idea that MPs need to actually work in a place that isn't going to fall on their heads or, or get on fire is fairly important. Absolutely. And of course, it's not just MPs, but there's a million people who in normal times visit the building each year, including you know thousands of school children. Um, and then we also need to talk about the thousands of parliamentary staff who work in the building each day. So there's a real health and safety is um, basically thousands of people every single day in Parliament. This isn't just about MPs talking about their, their wallpaper or their office furniture. Um, you know, it is, it is a really huge issue. But as you say, anything to do with Parliament makes it um, intrinsically political. And even though uh, MPs and peers last year legislated to give the governance, the organisation of this project, an independent organisation, they're still getting involved, as we've seen from the Prime Minister last week. So there are lots of alternatives as well that have been mooted uh, uh, that would be an alternative to a, a full decant, all of the MPs and Lords leaving Westminster. Are any of them likely to take hold? To be honest, I haven't seen any evidence, and I've been researching this issue for years, very much in depth, that, uh, that there is any feasible alternative to everybody moving out. Uh, reason we're in this uh problem at the moment is because for years they've tried to do the work around MPs. But to give you one example of the problem, even in the recesses, even in the holidays from Parliament, you can't really get at um, the, the source of the problem, which is very deep in the basement of the Palace of Westminster, where you have steam cables piled on top of the gas supplies, piled on top of electricity wires, all crammed in tiny corners of the basement. 
um, and that's the infrastructure serving the building. You can't fix that even in the recesses because the kind of major work that you need to do, where you have to cut off all the supplies, um, build new plant rooms, set up new infrastructure, you can't do that while there are still people working in the building. And even when MPs are away, you need to have the building ready so they could return within two days' notice if you have a recall of Parliament. So that really puts a huge constraint on any kind of major work that you want to get done, let alone, again, the health and safety risk that people continuing to work in the building shouldn't be forced to work through uh, asbestos being released during building works. Basically, what would be a massive building site. So... I can understand the wish that uh, people have not to leave the building, but I haven't seen any evidence that you could do the work necessary without the full decant. So, obvious answer, I suppose, uh, decamp the Commons perhaps to Richmond House and send the House of Lords up to, well, York, perhaps. Well, you've got a problem there. If you separate the two houses of Parliament, um, you really risk a lot of the, the work that Parliament does. It isn't just the Commons on its own. You have joint committees of MPs and Lords working together. You have all-party parliamentary groups. You have um, MPs and Lords need to be able to, to work in the same place. It's very, very unusual across the world to have a Parliament split on two sites like would be suggested. Um, and you'd wonder how, how ministers would work um, if you'd need a part of the department um, for serving Parliament to be in, the, in York and part in London. Um, separating the two bodies would be very difficult. And you'd have to get the Lords to agree, and they don't seem very keen on it at all. Well, I mean, the other thing that people aren't agreeing on is is this general issue. Uh, and, and I suppose it's a very difficult sell to the taxpayer, especially now, given that coronavirus means times are hard for many people. And this would ultimately be upgrading the workplace of MPs, which doesn't sound very popular at a surface level. No, absolutely. I can completely understand why people, uh, why politicians are scared of, of talking about it in those terms. But that's only one way of presenting it. The, the other way is that you've got to protect this building because it belongs to the nation. It doesn't belong to this generation of MPs, however popular or unpopular they are. The building belongs to the nation. It's a royal palace. It's part of our heritage. It's a much-loved building, and we're neglecting it. And we are at serious risk of the building burning down. Um, the other point I would make to that is that by doing nothing, you're not saving money. We're spending um, hundreds of millions of pounds every year just to keep the show on the road, just to keep um, try to keep up with the, the maintenance and the repairs that the building needs. So doing nothing isn't free. And I guess the third point there is if you keep just trying to, uh, to firefight, chances are this will be unsuccessful. You know, um, MPs and peers have already ruled or decided that there is an impending crisis facing the building, whether it's going to be a fire or a flood or a complete failure of the infrastructure serving the building. Um, and when that happens, the, the bill to the taxpayer is going to be huge. Unfortunately, there's no cheap way out of the problem that's built up over decades. So what's your gut feeling about what they're actually going to do in the end? Because at the moment they do seem to be just, well floundering around do you actually think it is going to get <laughs> repaired and in plenty of time I, I hope so um i absolutely hope so um i i do worry very much though that uh that we will 
put off making a decision again. There will always be calls for yet another review. Let's look at the options again. Let's make another report on what we can do. And the risk of, of doing that is it's based, it's predicated on the gamble that the building can survive uh, for the many years that it will take to keep looking at this issue again. And I just don't know if we have that time, if the building has that time. So my, my gut feeling would be that we'll find a, another way to stay and put this off but that is very, very risky. And very briefly, it sounds alarmist, but I feel like it might be warranted. Are we looking at another Notre Dame here? It could happen. I don't want to be alarmist either. And there are 24-7 fire waters patrolling the Palace of Westminster 24-7. They are putting out small fires all the time in that building. So there are are many steps being taken to protect the people and protect the building, but you absolutely cannot rule out. You know, a, a huge fire of in the building. I, I wish it wasn't the case. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.